right, well, good morning. Good to see you folks. You guys awake? Yep, for the most part. Enough? Enough? Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm glad to see you. My name is Phil Harrington, one of the pastors here, and I'm sure you've seen plenty of me, more than you expected or wanted to uh, recently, so uh, sorry, but you'll be all right. You'll get over it. But hey, uh, I just want to let you know, uh, Johnny's not here. Uh, if that's why I'm speaking, uh, really, he just found out he couldn't handle it, so he's just up and left. No, I'm just, just kidding. Not, not at all true. Uh, no, actually, he is out in a, at a retreat uh, as part of a Lilly Endowment uh, for s- pastors who are transitioning or have transitioned into senior pastor leadership. And that is Johnny. That is exactly Johnny. So uh, he's been given the opportunity to have uh, some amazing training coaching, spiritual direction for two years. It's a program that's just going to really build into him and equip him to be a senior pastor because he's never done that before. And uh, I'm sure he could use all the help and uh, prayers that we can give him uh, and the Lily Endowment can give him as well. So that's where Johnny is. Uh, he is doing well, I think. I haven't heard from much from him, uh, which probably is a good thing. Uh, so that's where he is. He will be back next week. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're not stuck with me too much longer. But hey, we're continuing this series that we started last week, that Johnny started last week. It's a, it's a vision series. It's a transformation journey. And this series is to, to really provide you and us as a church the vision on what we are all about here at the Lancaster Vineyard and where we are headed as a church And as Johnny said last week, this really was born out of the reality the pandemic world shed a light on, that that we really haven't been doing the best job at discipling our people. We haven't really been doing the best job as a church at discipling those who come here to be like Jesus. Uh, Again, the, the good news, though, is that it's not like a Lancaster Vineyard problem. It's a church-wide problem. It's a large church, see, big church, every church problem. Uh, And it's a church issue. So we are starting this year by laying out our plan and the way forward in fulfilling the mission that we have at the Lancaster Vineyard of transforming people, transforming our city. This plan is, is really a discipleship framework with resources and tools and an overall emphasis on Uh, helping you be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And what a world we're in to do that. What a world we are living in to be transformed by Jesus and into the image of Jesus Christ. I tell you what, society seems to be spiraling down uh, at a much faster rate recently, much quicker pace than it had before, even just the previous five years. It appears that society and culture has lost its way. With the endless supply of options and and choices, paths and directions to choose, society as a whole, I find really confusing. I find it really confusing. It seems to be disoriented at sorts. And what's worse, it's not only disoriented, but it is disorienting for those who live in the world. Unfortunately, the church seems to be in a similar state of disorientation. Again, so many options, so many choices in church. And what it actually means to be a Christian, even, seems to be a lot of options. 
right? What church does one choose? Where do you go? Which pastor? Do we follow the, the most exciting, charismatic pastor? Do we choose a church by the building? Or uh, a long time ago, when I was looking for churches, I'd choose by the website, right? Because if it had a crappy website, it probably means it's a crappy church, right? It kind of goes that way. Uh, I didn't want to be a part of it. But what else? What else do we look at in church? What kind of music? What kind of environment it has? What kind of lighting it has? What kind of fog machines, if any, it have? What kind of what kind of pastor, what sermons do they give? What kind of great, amazing things are coming out of the church? Do we look at the ministries of the church? Do we look at how many people they're helping, how much finances they receive, how much finances they give away? There's so many choices and so many options of church. And so many churches to choose from, and they're all trying to get you to choose them. Now, I've got to say, the Christian life has never been known as the easiest of lives. But maybe the reason why so many people are not choosing church is because of the endless options they face. It leads to confusion. It's disorienting. And when the rest of the world appears to be the same, why add another thing to the list of priorities in my life? The problem isn't choosing to follow or to not follow. The issue is, what are we choosing to follow? Everybody is following something. Everyone is following someone. But the issue is, what are we choosing and who are we choosing to follow? When so many things are vying and competing for our attention, which way do we go? Where do we turn? Last week, Johnny shared in the first uh, sermon of the series that Jesus' invitation to follow him. In today's world, in secular world and Christian world alike, it's more and more complicated figuring out what it means to look like and what it is to follow Jesus. It's all a bit disorienting. Today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look to see what the Lord has to teach us about this disorienting world And as we look to the scriptures for help, I hope you walk away encouraged and reoriented. But before we go further, let's let's just pray and invite the Lord here. God, we just ask for your presence in this place, in our hearts, in our minds. We ask for your presence on this message. Lord, that you would move in this place, that you would move in our hearts. That you would come and do a work in us, Lord. We are wandering in a disoriented world, and we need you to guide us through, God. We look to you. We thank you. Amen. I know directions are, you know, asking for directions is a touchy subject for a lot of people. I'm not an ask-for-direction kind of person. That is why I'm very thankful that we have phones that have maps all over the place with GPS opportunities. Um, my favorite map app, which is really hard to say quickly without thinking, my favorite map app is Waze. Do we have anybody who uses Waze here? Yes. I love Waze. 
it's, it's a fantastic app. It, it tells you um, where to go, what the best route is. It, you know, you can even uh, stop at a, at a stop at Burger King on the way. Or, no, nobody wants to go to Burger King anymore, really. No, Wendy's, you can stop at Wendy's. I don't know why Burger King, first thing that came to mind, probably because they advertise on ways, so that's what pops up often. But anyway, so the, the great thing is they use all the data from their users, which I get is a little creepy and big brother-ish, but they use all the data from their users who are using the app to, to find out what, you know, where traffic is stopped, what the speed is so you know where to go. And what's great is when there's a traffic, uh, there's an accident, it, it gives you, you know, like all great map apps do, they, they give you another way, right? They give you an alternate route, alternate destination, which is fantastic when it'll save an hour off your time, right? At least so it says. And, I, it reminded me of, uh, of a time a few years ago, we took our family to, to Washington, D.C. to see all the sites there, and uh, we were really excited, and we were driving out, and man, right on the highway, there was this big accident, and it was like dead standstill, and so, you know, look at Waze, and Waze gives me this other option, right, this alternate route, and so I, I'm like, yes, this will shave an hour off of our time, so that's where we're going to go. And so we get off the highway and we go, it looked like it should have been like divided highway or something, but um, that wasn't right. It ended up being this nice windy road through the hills and forest of West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland, all through there, right? Like uh, if I was in like a, a sports car, uh, I probably would have had a lot of fun going in and out, but in the minivan, it's not very exciting. Uh, and then, to make matters worse, while we're driving through this nice scenic route, uh, we remember all of a sudden, our youngest daughter, Nora, reminds us that she gets car sick. So here we are in the back roads, winding through the forest and then the mountains and the hills, enjoying the scenery, thinking, oh, this is a great detour. And then out of the back seat, we're like, mom, yeah. So that happened, and normally when you're on the highway, not the biggest deal, right? Because pretty much when you're on major highways between major metropolitan areas, there's a rest stop every mile, right? Not the case in the backwoods and the back, you know, the rolling hills of West Virginia. There's really not many places to stop, and then you do find a stop, you question whether you should stop, right? But being at the situation that was, we found a, found a stop while driving. I think, I swear, it was probably about, it felt like 45 minutes of driving after things happened. But I think it was just a couple minutes. It just seemed like 45. But we found, we finally rolled up into a, a rest stop. and a, Well, rest stop would be a nice uh, description of it. It was a place to pull off the side of the road, and it had a bathroom and had a little convenience store. It was, it was a little sketchy. Uh, the good parent that I was, I stayed in the car uh, because uh, I wasn't comfortable getting out. No, but really, you know, little kids who get sick don't want their dads, right? We're basically worthless in those situations. But anyways, I sat there standing in the front seat waiting for Abby to take care of, of Nora, clean her up, and, and I just felt lost. I felt, oh my gosh, what did I do? What did I do letting my wife and kid go into this rest stop? What did I do veering off the main highway onto this nice scenic route that only just got my kids sick? Feeling, what did I do? I have lost. I tell you what, navigating life is hard in itself, right? And then you throw on added stresses and pressures of 
car sick kids. You throw in added pressures of family members and family relationships. Throw in the pressures of work and, and advancing the career and the going up the, the career ladder and finding satisfaction and fulfillment in the work. You throw in pressures of other relationships with friends, romantic or not. You throw in, uh, in the mix, school, homework, study, grades. You throw in the mix the pressures of church life and the expectations you feel that are upon you to be the good Christian person that you should be or that they think that you should be. You throw those all together into life and, and it all just becomes a lot harder. And then add the myriad choices we're faced with on a daily basis. You know, it really realizes that yeah, we become to focus. We, we become to focus on just staying alive just staying afloat, just keeping our head above water. And so then now you've decided to follow Jesus. What better way to, to change a life like that? It's incredible. If you responded first time to the invitation last week or you've responded to the invitation of Jesus to follow him recently, that's incredible, that's awesome. But now what? Is that just going to be another stress, another thing to add to the confusion the list of the million things that are already competing for our attention, or is there a better way? I believe there is a better way. And to find out, I want us to take a look at what Jesus had to say about it. And in a world when even our basic needs are challenged, when our basic needs are a challenge to, to, to accumulate and to have, and we tend to pour out all our attention and our focus on the things in the here and now, Jesus provides a better way. So if you have your Bibles, I just encourage you to turn to Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 6. And if you took up Johnny's uh, recommendation and suggestion from last week to read the book of Matthew, you're going to find that this is a familiar passage. And, it, and if you didn't take Johnny up on his suggestion to read the book of Matthew, it's still going to be a familiar passage. And Matthew 6 is right in the middle of uh, Jesus' first sermon. And so when we take the passage that Jesus read, uh, Jesus, uh, that Johnny read, not Jesus, um, but that Johnny shared last week, it's the invitation from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calling his first disciples to come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then right after that, shortly after that, Jesus is on a hillside and he finds him surrounded by a bunch of people and his disciples and he preaches his first sermon. And this is where we're going to be. And uh, what I would love to do is to, to like sit down with you for probably months at a time and just take you all through the Sermon on the Mount because, in my opinion, it's like the best part of Scripture I've, I've come across. I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's so good, chock full of so many great things, but uh, nobody wants to do that <clears throat> now or uh, maybe ever. But nonetheless, uh, I encourage you to, to dive into the Sermon on the Mount. We might do a series on it later, but... We see that in the Sermon on the Mount here, at first glance, it, it just looks like a, a list of things to do now. Now that you're a follower of Jesus, now that this is Jesus' teaching of his disciples, his first sermon that he's giving to all these people who are listening to him. And at first glance, it just looks like a bunch of things that you're supposed to do now. Now that you're following Jesus, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you're not supposed to do as a disciple of Jesus. But if we look further and read deeper, and study it a little bit, we realize that it's not just about what we do. 
It's really about who we are. See, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a bunch of rules. It's a way of life. It's the way of Jesus, the way of love. It's not just moral rules to follow. It's a moral code that informs the way you live your entire life. There's so much to learn from the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to point us to the answer. Jesus gives his disciples when he knows that they're thinking about all that he is saying to them, and I'm sure they had these crazy looks on their face. Jesus, the good teacher that he is, spelling all these things out that, hey, here's what the law says. You've heard it say before, do this, and I'm going to, or don't do this, and I'm going to say, you know, you need to step it up a notch. You need to be better. You need to be different. And he's going through all these things, and they're like, you know, he's, he's talking about storing up your treasures in heaven, whatever that means. And I can imagine all these disciples are looking at him with like, uh, crap, what did I get myself into? Right? How am I going to do this? How am I going to, if I'm going to live the way that you're wanting me to live, Jesus, how am I going to find food to eat? How am I going to make a living? How am I going to have clothes on my back? How am I going to do all the things that I need to do? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do everything? And then Jesus comes in with this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. It says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But get this, his answer. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See, Jesus is completely aware of what's going through their heads. And he provides a poignant answer to their questions, the one that they're not saying because they're afraid to ask it, but they're thinking about it, just like you may be thinking about it as well. They were concerned about their everyday needs. If they were to drop everything and follow Jesus and live this new kind of life and store up treasures in heaven, how would I be taken care of? Much like us today, when we start focusing and concerning our attention toward the very things and decisions and choices that confront us, we orient ourselves and our hearts and our lives toward those things. And soon we become consumed by those things. And Jesus' answer here is, seek first his kingdom. We see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is calling us to a new way of life, to reorient our lives toward him and his kingdom. He says, don't worry about the other things. God knows what you need. God will provide, but seek first Jesus. And see, with this message, Jesus helps us to reorient our lives in a very disoriented world. Jesus' call is to live for something more than ourselves, more than who we are and what we are, but to live for him. This reorientation is for us to not change what we do, but change the direction of where we're going. And what Jesus says to us is if we reorient our life toward him, what we do will change. He's telling us not to focus on our actions, but to focus on our heart. 
We need to shift our focus off of ourselves, away from our things, away from the things of this world, and on to Jesus. It's hard, though, because in this world, in our society, we've been so trained and inundated in so many ways against that mentality, against that orientation towards the world. It's as if the enemy is just actively trying to work and steal our attention and focus on the things of this world. So many promises of better life, of better health, of well-being, of financial success, whatever else there is to distract us. The world is after our attention, and for what? When we give our attention to the world, what do we get? We get the world. The truth about what the world has to offer is that we will get what we want. However, the fallacy is that what we want is what will make us happy, better, or good, or whole, or satisfied. And that's where the world lies. We think that what we're after will make us better or make us whole. When we're after the things of the world, they will bring satisfaction and completeness to us. And the lie is that they just don't. Take it further, and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 25, Jesus goes deeper with an answer that is both shocking and quite hard to swallow. He says this, and then he said to them, Jesus said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I like the, uh, the just come follow me invitation. That was a lot easier to, to handle, right? Just come and follow me. But again, Jesus goes a little further. If you want to be my disciple and if you choose to follow me, you will take up your cross daily and follow me. And then here's why. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit their very self? What good is it for us to go after the world? What gain is there to go after the things of the world? You get the things of the world. That's what you get. But in the process, you lose your very self. What the world has to offer is unfulfilling. It's temporary. Things that will leave or die or go away. Things that will just leave us disoriented in this world things that will leave us wanting more and unsatisfied. Mike Pilavachi, in his book Everyday Supernatural, says this, Our culture is full of invitations to self-fulfillment and self-discovery. The truth is we don't need to discover more about ourselves. We need to find more of Jesus. He himself said, just reemphasizing Luke, 924, what I just read, he himself said that anyone who would try to find his life would lose it. Yet anyone who lost his life for the sake of the gospel would find it. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, in teaching his disciples how to pray and to give and how to fast and what it looks like, he condemned the religious leaders' public display of spirituality by saying that they have received their reward in full 
and making a display about their good deeds so all the people would see and ooh and all over what they've done and how much they've given and all the great things that they're doing, the religious leaders would do this so that everybody would see. And Jesus' point is, they got what they were looking for. Their reward is what they were after. Their reward is the praises of men. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, go in your closet. It's about God. When you give, give secretly because it's about God. When you fast, don't make yourself look like you're fasting because that would draw attention to you and to your fast. Make yourself look better. Put, it says put oil on yourself. Clean up, take a bath when you fast so you don't look so, you don't look like you're fasting, right? Why? Not so that people wouldn't see that you're fasting and praise you. But God would see that you're fasting and be glorified in you. See, it's about him. It's about God. Jesus, again, is describing what it means to follow the way of Jesus and to reorient your life after him. And the truth is, if it's about anything else, if it's about anything else, we become just like everything else. Another great passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said in 523 verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 23, is, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, it is worthless and has no purpose. And see, when we seek after anything other than Jesus and his kingdom, we lose our saltiness. We lose our flavor. We lose our distinction. We lose our purpose and our calling. We lose what makes us us. We lose Jesus. When we focus on the things of this world, when we're not orienting our hearts towards Jesus and our lives toward Jesus, we lose our saltiness. And unfortunately, it just makes us like everybody else. Jesus is what makes us different. Jesus is what distinguishes us from others. We lose our way. And so for us as a church, you know, we don't want to participate in church life in that way. We want to be a church of salty people. Not like sassy attitude saltiness, but we want to be a church of salt people, people of distinction, people of character, people who are not known by what they do, but known by who they are. People who are followers of Jesus, who are living out the way of Jesus. We want to be a church of people who are followers of Jesus, who have reoriented their lives towards him. We want to be a people who seek first the kingdom. People who are taking up the cross daily to follow Jesus. Too often, even in this church, the focus has been on ministries, been on outreaches, been on programming. The things that we do as a church, those have been our focus. And as a church, we want to reorient our church toward Jesus. To be about who the people of this church are and not by what we do. We want to be known for people who follow the way of Jesus. And so that's why we're talking about this. That's why we're in this series, and that's why we're preaching these sermons, because we're preaching about transformation. It's why we have plans to provide you with the resources and the tool that you need to experience the transformation of a life oriented towards Jesus. 
In doing the, the planning for this sermons, we came across a, a quote from Dallas Willard, who's a former math professor and theologian, and in my opinion, probably one of the smartest dudes ever to live. He said this, but if we do not make formation in Christ the priority, then we're just going to keep on producing Christians that are indistinguishable in their character from many non-Christians. As a pastor, that hurts. I feel that. And I don't want to say, ouch. Like, that hurts. If we do not make formation in Christ the priority, then we're just going to keep on producing people who look just like everybody else. Just with a label called Christian. And I have to confess I say my life hasn't been completely focused on and oriented towards Jesus in, my, in, in many ways. And I can, I can tell you that there are many ways that I've become disoriented in my life and in my ministry where the focus has shifted away from Jesus on, on whether it's producing results, it's creating great ministries, it's whatever it is, making people happy. I don't want to talk about that one. I have become disoriented in some ways. Yet, the good news, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus is just this. He says, come and follow me. And that invitation is given on a daily basis, on a more than daily basis. It's given every time we need it. It's an invitation that says, come and follow me. Come and orient, reorient your life towards me and I will give you rest. Come and and reorient your life towards me and I will give you the desires of your heart. Come, follow me, reorient your life towards me and I will make you a fisher of men, a bringer of people. Come and follow me and I will make you new. And so Jesus is inviting us still, come and follow me. Reorient your life to me, and I will make you whole. I think it's pretty clear the world is a scary and dangerous place, and it can be a scary and dangerous place for some. If it's not scary and dangerous to you, it's very disorienting and confusing as to where to go and what to do at times. And Jesus' invitation is to come and follow him, to reorient your heart towards him in this disoriented world. Do you hear the call of the Father? Do you hear the call of Jesus? It says, come. I want to end in in a little different way. As part of a ministry time, I just have a little exercise to take us through. And Julie's going to come up and, and just play some music in the background. But as, as for a ministry time, I just felt like there was, a, there was uh, as, I was, um, as I was writing this sermon, I was preparing for this message. It was one that was, I found really challenging. And I know it's like, oh, it's a simple passage. It's not that big of a deal. Like, you just tell people to change their life and everything's fine. But... Uh, I found this message as I was preparing it really convicting 
Because here I am up here telling you all these things that you need to do when I myself am not always doing those. And so the Lord led me to, to just through a little process that I want to lead you guys through. And, and uh, it's just really about opening yourself up. And we're just going to lead you through a couple steps, uh, four steps. And uh, I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes. To open up your heart. Because the Lord led me to reflect on my, my life, not just my past, but also my present. He said, and I just went to him, I said, Lord, show me what it is in my life that's not seeking you. What area of my life do I need to reorient to you? And so I just encourage you right now, to ask the Lord just that question. Lord, what in my life do I need to reorient toward you? It could be a small area. It could be a significant area. Father God, would you come and speak to us today? having trouble finding an area in your life let me help maybe it's your finances maybe it's your marriage think about your kids that area of your life and mine the next step is to confess if I was really mean I'd make you turn to your neighbor and confess this area of your life but I don't think we need to do that I just think you need to confess it to the Lord and there's power in confession there's actual power in, in saying it whether out loud or very clearly to the Lord that this is the area of my life God that I have not oriented toward you and just tell him Say, I'm sorry. Ask for forgiveness. God, we confess those things in our lives. The things that we have held back from you, the things that we have sought other sources for. We confess those to you, God. God. 